All right, welcome back. Um, this will be uh, part two of the 1998 uh, stuff. Uh, this is episode 55. 55, wow, that's a lot, it seems like. So uh, I left off uh, in the last podcast with a, a graffiti writing adventure with my man, Sir, in uh, South London, where I got into a crazy fucking chase and... That was good, good fucking times. Um, but we're gonna pick up now, and I think we're still in. Basically, uh, I would imagine around April of uh, nineteen ninety-eight, still in London. And uh, at that point, uh, by April, I think I had started talking to my ex-girlfriend in uh, San Francisco, who uh, what do I call her today? Um, call her. Uh, We'll call her Claire today. <laughs> I don't want to use her real name. Um, not that she'd really give a fuck or anybody would know her, but I'll just use a different name. Um, so I was talking to Claire, and uh, she was interested in getting back together with me if I came back to the States, and I admitted you know, that I really missed her. Um, she was a real... She was a handful, you know, very loving, but very, like... Um, kind of mentally unstable and uh just kind of a handful was uh her emotions could uh change rather quickly uh for reasons that i was unclear about um but uh she was very passionate and very beautiful and i very very much enjoyed fucking her brains out (laughs) um and you know it's one of those things so i think we were even corresponding uh via letters in the mail uh might have been email at that point for sure but i think we were writing letters to each other too um that was something i really liked to do and uh she like i say was like hey you know if you come back um you know we should try again and i told her i'd be down so and i started thinking about going back because london at that point had been kicking my ass uh, it was still hard to make money. Uh, I was losing weight like crazy, as I mentioned at the beginning of the last podcast. Uh, you know, it was just one of those things. And I, I think I had, had, was coming to learn what I needed to from London and from that time in my life and, you know, giving me a new direction and whatnot. So at the time, I was still seeing Carrie, uh, my girl in London. Uh, with the crooked teeth and the latex pants and stuff. And uh, she was super fun. I, I don't think we had sex very much at all because I, I think we had sex at one time at my uh, in my place. And uh, the the lady that owned that house was kind of bummed that I, I brought a girl over and fucked her brains out a few times <laughs> without clearing it first. Uh, so I, I don't think I brought Carrie back to my place. We might have had sex on the street a few times, like literally, like up against a wall, um, you know, in an alley or stuff, because we would just we we didn't really have much other place to go. I don't think she was in any position. I think she lived with her parents still. She was in like college, and uh, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to go home with her. <laughs> I don't think her parents knew about her uh, wild side at all. Uh, but I told Carrie, you know, I I needed to kind of chill on seeing her because I decided to uh, reconnect with my girlfriend when I got back to San Francisco and it just felt like weird to 
keep fucking her when I decided to, you know, stick with Claire. So she wasn't, she was bummed, but she wasn't terribly bummed. <laughs> I think, she, like I said, I think she was seeing other people. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was a bummer. It was one of those things. Carrie and I were, had a really good time. And uh, I wish I knew where she is now. Uh, she was so fucking cool. But uh, in any case, uh, I was still hanging out a bunch with my man, Deck, who I met from Art Crimes, graffiti.org. And uh, I think it was in April around there that w- we decided to take a, a, tr- a train trip down to Brighton at the, uh, the coast, uh, the southern coast of England. Uh, I forget how far that train ride is, maybe an hour and a half, two, two hours from London. Uh, but it was nice. It was a cool ride. It was just a few of us, the tight homies, the, the like chill graffiti dudes. Because um, I knew some kind of wild graffiti dudes too back then. But th- this was like the chill crew, the, the art crimes guys, the guys my own age. And uh, we went down and there was a place called The Moon uh, that was like, uh, I don't know what the fuck it was originally. But it was this big concrete like... Uh, building like industrial kind of thing that had gotten decrepit and worn and it was like a graffiti hall of fame and if i remember right it was right on the beach um and it was fucking really fucking cool and uh i was remember just being surprised that there was like a a thriving graffiti scene in this tiny little uh beach town uh brighton and uh i i really 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 liked brighton i've always thought that uh I could move there and live. Uh, I think there's a, a tattooer friend uh, that I made there. Oh, man, I wish I could think of his name right now. Uh, but he was living down there. He owns Into You Tattoo in London. Uh, shit, I can't think of his name right now. Too much weed. But uh, in any case, uh, Brighton was fucking dope. And that, that was a, a, a super fun day. Uh, I think around that time, too, uh, I had a bunch of scrap cans from doing a lot of pieces um, with those guys and uh, threw a, a bunch of it in a bag and grabbed my skateboard and went up to uh, the northern part of London uh, to a, a skate spot called Meanwhile. It was like these uh, banks with a nice round bottom on them um, that are underneath a, a freeway bridge. So when it's raining you can just hang out down there and skate and you don't get wet and uh it's a pretty famous spot it's got a big gap thing that gone's famously ollied over and a bunch of people have done some crazy shit over it um it's pretty wild uh but it was a go-to spot i would go there a lot and on this one day i went down there and i skated for a little while and uh i decided to do some throw-ups just some nice filled in uh, GI throw-ups, the ones where I uh, turned the G into like a face with the tongue hanging out. The guy's mouth is open. It's like, it's kind of, my mom calls it blah. Uh, But that's the, uh, uh, that throw-up I was doing even way back then. I I still put it up once in a while these days. But I must have put up like eight or nine of them all around meanwhile that day. And I did it just in the middle of the day. I think it was during the week. And I remember people looking at me like I was a little crazy, but everything down there was graffitied. You know, I was doing graffiti over old fucked up graffiti. 
So I didn't really think it would have been a problem. Even if the police came, I'd be like, I'm doing graffiti over graffiti. Like, what's the fucking deal here? Obviously, if you didn't want the graffiti here, it would have been painted over, you know? I kind of used that logic with a lot of stuff in London because it was just, it was bombed. It was, it was so bombed. Um, but that was really fun. And I remember a lot of people uh, saw those throw-ups and th- uh, they would come off in the back of... Uh, photos of skaters in magazines and stuff for many, many years after that. Um, I'm trying to think. I guess it's probably around May of that year. Um, I uh, Some friends from San Francisco came out. My man, uh, UFO, uh, DJ, uh, jungle producer, still does a lot of dope shit. Him and I did a, a project called Giant UFO like two years ago during the... Uh, pandemic that you can hear as one of my podcasts if you just go back into the the archives there and look for giant ufo but he's a badass ed good friend of mine he would do these cool like uh ufo throw-ups as graffiti in san francisco and he was really tight with a lot of my tight homies and um yeah i always loved ed and i think he was with his friend abstract who's another drum and bass uh drum and bass i mean uh, producer and DJ from San Francisco. They had a crew called Funkatech um, that included a, a few other DJs. Um, and they were, of course, doing a lot of record shopping when they were in London. So I imagine we probably met up at Black Market or Rough Trade or something and uh, kicked it. And uh, one of those nights that they were there, uh, we, I, if I remember correctly, we, we went to see uh, a guy named Ed Rush, uh, which is kind of a play on the word head rush, if you say it with a British accent, like Ed Rush, like that's how they would say head rush. Anyway, Ed Rush was tight. He had this really cool, minimal, dark drum and bass style that we all really dug. Um, he used to do a lot of stuff with this dude, Optical, that was really sick, too. He might have been even playing that same night that we saw Ed Rush. But um, I think that was with them. I, I could be wrong. But uh, also, uh, Laura, who went by Sage, uh, sh- she was Ed's uh, girlfriend back in the day. And she's a really uh, sick drum and bass DJ herself and producer. She's super badass. She, she might have been along on that trip too she was one of the founders of eclectic uh which was a a regular i think a weekly drum and bass night in san francisco that was all women that was fucking amazing but in any case uh i remember that being really fun i think that was also one of the if one of the first if not the first time someone offered me a drug called ghb uh i didn't know much about it it was kind of uh, you know, synthetic designer drug kind of thing, but people were doing it in the club scene and seeming to have a really good time. And uh, I just, I don't know, I was always really suspicious of shit like that, so I never tried it. But I do remember it was uh, going around a lot. I think it was around that time, too, that I went on a mission with uh, my buddy Eggs. Uh, we'd been wanting to hit trains, and they were just really hard to hit. And, uh, you know, we, we were just on a mission, so uh, I believe we took uh, a train all the way out to uh, Grove Park Station. Uh, I 
think it was just him and I. It might have been a third person with us, but I, I really can't remember. Um, and I remember he mentioned to me that uh, the trains we would hit would be parked outside of the main holding shed where they keep most of the trains in the yard. But occasionally the shed would be full or something, and they would end up having to park a whole line of cars um, just outside the shed. And it was harder for security to keep an eye on those trains. Um, so that made them uh, targets for us. And uh, so we went out there super late at night. We brought along a bunch of extra beer and stuff. And uh, I just remember it being quite a mission to get there. And I, if I remember right, we went to this uh, small uh, like public park, grass and trees and stuff. And uh, went to the, the back of the park where it uh, backed up to the train yard. And we could see the train, uh, the whole train yard from there. And uh, as soon as we got there, we had a good look. And Eggs was just really disappointed. Because <laughs> there weren't any trains in the uh, outdoor area that we wanted to hit. And so we were kind of fucked because it would have been too risky to go into the actual work shed building and try to paint trains in there. I think there were laser trips and stuff like that to alert them if somebody was in there. So we, we, were, we were stuck. Uh, we, had, we were out late enough that we'd missed the last train back into central London. Uh, so we ended up just, uh, chilling. <laughs> we chilled all night, uh, to be honest, until the sun came up and, uh, the first train came by probably between six and seven in the morning. I believe it was a Sunday morning, super, super quiet, nobody around. I remember us just walking around, uh, that late in such a quiet little neighborhood because the, uh, the train yards were usually way at the end of the line, so they weren't anywhere near a city. They were kind of out in these really quiet, kind of uh, suburban or even rural areas. Super, super quiet. So it was just really obvious uh, to London guys with backpacks and jackets and stuff, you know, just walking around in the middle of the night was super obvious. Uh, but luckily, we didn't run into any problems and we were able to get out of there, but man, that was a bitch. I, there were a few times I tried to link up with different people to paint the trains and we weren't even trying to paint the, the tubes, the actual subway trains that are in London. We were trying to hit like the, the Brit rail. I think in particular, we were trying to hit the, uh, network Southeast that night at Grove park and it, it just didn't work out. I think right around that time, I got to see a band called Trans Am, which was kind of like a electronic kind of indie band. Uh, they were really fucking cool. It was really strange and new, uh, a new sound, you know, that I'd never heard before. And I was really, really into it. And I went with my friend Nicole um, that uh, worked at Wired Magazine and was really kind of tuned into uh, some pretty cool shit that was happening in London. And uh, this Trans Am show was, was really cool. It was up in Camden Town, 
North London, one of my f favorite neighborhoods. Uh, a lot of underground history there. Uh, a lot of graffiti writing, skating history, and hip hop and punk and everything. It was a really, really, really fun place. I don't. I think it was through Eggs um, that he connected me with this dude, Psycho. Might not have been Eggs. It might have been Homie Deck from um, Art Crimes. But in any case, I went to this house party, and I was introduced to this dude that wrote Psycho. And I think he was from the Netherlands. I think he was Dutch. And uh, he was my age. Um, probably about as, not as big as me for sure. Um, but not a little dude either. And uh, there was this other kid uh, that was like 16 that had done quite a few subway trains, um, the tubes and the, and the Brit rails. And he, he was pretty confident and uh, really enjoyed doing them, but didn't know very many people that did trains. And again, he was super young, so he wouldn't really go to the yards alone. He, he always wanted to go with older riders. And he was a really cool kid. I hung out with him a few times. I wish I could remember his name. He was so quiet. He barely said a fucking thing the whole time. But when it came time to get down, he popped the cans open and he would get fucking loose quick. And he was, he was responsible and you, you didn't have to worry about him. Or I didn't. But uh, Psycho was another story. He was a fucking maniac. And I should have known by the name Psycho that it was going to be potentially trouble. But uh, we met at this house party, and he was kind of wilding out. He had a lot of energy. He was kind of loud and obnoxious. and you know. But I, I dealt with a lot of fucking people like that in the graffiti scene. And you know, usually when you, you get to the spot, they fucking shut the fuck up and get to work and get it done. Um, and you know, I, I think people were looking out for me and not trying to hook me up with some complete fucking asshole. So I wasn't tripping too hard, but we drank a bunch there and I was like, maybe he shouldn't be drinking so much if he's the one that's going to be driving, you know, but I was like, ah, we'll see. We'll see. And so we leave this party at like midnight and on the way back to his car, for some reason, he decides to start punching out the rear view mirrors on the sides of cars as we walk by on the sidewalk with his like left hand. And he's just like fully just like straight swinging on these mirrors and just breaking them right off the cars and just laughing. And after the first or second one, his fucking knuckles were bleeding. And I was like, bro, like chill. And I remember looking at the, the young dude and was like, yo, what's up with this fucking kid? And he was just like shook his head like, I don't know, man. So fucking psycho must have broken out like eight or nine fucking mirrors and i was like dude this guy is such a dick like why would you just fucking do that like what an asshole but i wanted to paint fucking train so i was like all right let's i'm just gonna fucking deal with this shit so we get to his pad and uh he busts out more fucking hard alcohol and some weed and we're smoking and drinking and he's like telling us all these crazy stories about getting chased and fighting and all this stuff you know trying to make himself look good i think but we didn't really care. We were just like, let's just go paint, man. We don't need to hear your fucking stories. But uh, while we were there, he, he busted out rubber, uh, like dishwashing gloves, like yellow rubber gloves, and uh, starts uh, cleaning off all of his uh, spray cans with like solvent and rags. And I'm like, what the fuck are you doing, Holmes? And he's like, I must remove all the uh, fingerprints. And he had a really heavy Dutch accent and... Uh, I don't, I don't want to try to replicate it. <laughs> I'm not that high right now. But uh, 
it was just it was funny and he just explained oh yeah i have to clean the the cans from fingerprints just in case you know we throw them away when we're done painting in the yard and they get fingerprints you know and i'm like fuck you guys gotta worry about the fucking police getting fingerprints off the spray cans jesus christ i'd never heard of anything that gnarly when i was a, a writer in, in uh, albuquerque or san francisco or anywhere in the states so it was serious and i was like oh fuck this is this is real we're about to get into some fucking heavy shit here. I had no, you know, I, and I never dealt with uh, European train bombers before, so I really had no idea what was what was up. And they were like strictly fucking business. They were like real criminals. They had all the proper tools, and they were made sure they didn't leave any evidence behind, even fingerprints. Some serious shit. So we pack everything up and hop in the car. I'm still a little concerned about him being able to drive good when he's fucking obviously a little drunk. I don't know if he was really drunk. He was definitely buzzed and wild, but he drove okay, I thought. I didn't feel too concerned. And uh, he took us out. And I just was looking at a map of the stations in like kind of the southern Brit Rail system. And I think the first place he took us to might have been Uckfield, uh, station and it was just a layup so like it was the end of the line I, I think and there was just one long row of of cars and one train um, parked at the station and it was going to stay there overnight and we got there just at basically the right time so we parked the car and we uh, had to walk uh, kind of through a little neighborhood to get to the train tracks and then there was a, a little fence that we could just kind of step over but we kind of hid in the woods as we were approaching the train that was parked there and it had all the lights on but it, it was just sitting still and it was pretty quiet and uh, Psycho explained to us that the conductor was going to walk all the way down the train inside and check it out and grab any garbage make sure there's nobody in there before he turns it off for the night and we'd see him come to the last car where we were at the end of the train. And then he would turn around and he'll turn the lights off on each car as he clears them and go all the way to the front and then turn the whole train off and go home for the night. So we're sitting there and we're patient. We're being really, really, really fucking quiet. And sure enough, we see the conductor and he's walking up kind of a chubby dude. And, uh, he gets to the back car and he looks around and he could have looked right out the window and basically seen us, uh, but he didn't. And uh, he, uh, it looked clear. So he starts walking back towards the front of the train and he turned the lights off in that last car as he got through it. And then uh, we started creeping up towards the train knowing he was walking away from us at that point. I don't know who did who did it or what, but somebody must have kicked a glass bottle, and there was all those. It's like rocks, like big chunky rocks in the train yard along the the, tra the tracks, and it made a hell of a racket. And it, like I say, it was probably you know, it was probably one o'clock in the morning by then. It was dead fucking quiet, and uh, the bottle made a lot of noise. And we all looked at each other like, what the. Fuck? fuck man god damn it 
And sure enough, we saw the lights on the train car turning back on. And they were turning on as they were coming back close to us. So he was obviously, the conductor was obviously walking back to the back of the train again to see what the fuck was up. And uh, Psycho was like, ah, we fucked up. We got to go. And so we bounced and we went back to his car and he was super pissed and was like, God damn it. That would have been easy. We could have fucking done a whole car there. And I was like, I, and I don't remember kicking a bottle. I really don't think it was me. I think it was Psycho, to be honest, but I think he was playing it off like it wasn't him, like he didn't fuck up. But in any case, we couldn't paint there for whatever reason. He was like, nah, that dude's going to hang out now. He knows somebody's out here. So he was like, we're going to drive to another yard, but it's another 30 minutes from here. And we were like, fuck. So we drove and drove and drove. And again, it's the middle of the fucking night. It's super quiet. We're not passing any cars. And we're out in the middle of fucking nowhere, basically, in southern England. And uh, he pulls up to another station. And I think we might have been at Brighton by then, um, which I had visited before. But it was at night, and I wasn't so sure. But it was a big yard. Um, if I remember right, there was at least four or five uh, lanes of cars uh, lined up and, and we saw that there was one line that was kind of off to the side of the main yard away from the security booth and stuff that we decided would be good to hit that we shouldn't run into any problems as long as we don't trip any lasers or s stuff like that we should be good to go so we parked the car got our gear together crept over to the yard made sure you know we sat there for a little bit and just chilled and listened and made sure nobody was out walking around because of the uh, the workers uh, building and security was wasn't too far. There was kind of eye shot from where we were, but we didn't know how bright the yard was from a distance. So we thought we were kind of in the dark um, and felt pretty confident that we could pull it off. So we stepped up to a train. Um, the Brit rails are pretty high, and the, the they start pretty high too. They're a little bit, I don't know if they're higher than a freight train. Probably about the same. So as high as I can reach is eight foot, and that only got me up to basically the bottom of the windows on the train car. Uh, so I did a window down, a uh, giant piece, pretty quick, few, just a few colors. I uh, did a really simple piece, the, the kind that I'd knock out. I call it my stamp. I can knock them out in like 10, 15 minutes, nice and clean. And at the same time, uh, our young homie, the teenager, was getting down. He did a nice little piece. Again, I wish I can remember what he wrote. And Psycho did a, a pretty decent piece, too. A little sloppy for my taste, but, you know, uh, he he was a train bomber, and he, he knew what was going on. He painted really fast and efficiently, and I, I definitely appreciated that. Although I must admit I finished my piece before he did and was looking over at him like, yo, come on, man, finish your shit. Let's get the fuck out of here, you know? And uh, he did, and we fucking were like, all right, let's, let's fucking go. We pulled it off. And uh, I was like, yo, let me get some photos with a flash, and then we'll just fucking run out of here. And he was like, no, hold on. I still have paint. We have to kill all cars. And I was like, what? Kill all cars? Are you fucking kidding me? What are you talking about? And he said, like, yeah, we have to tag all cars with this crazy Dutch accent. Yeah, we have to kill all cars. And I was like, fuck you, dude, really? All right, man, well, let's fucking go. And so we start walking along the train, after we did full color pieces basically on the last car and uh we just walked through and we were just catching tags and throw-ups as we went 
and he wanted to hit as many as we could. And I was like, dude, I think we're getting a little too close to the workers booth. You know, I think they're going to hear us or see us or some shit. And fuck it. He was like, no, no, it's okay. Just be quiet. We'll, we'll keep killing the cars. And I was like, okay, fucking sure enough, we got spotted and they set off an alarm the whole fucking nine it sucked and i was like fuck you dude see and now we got a fucking bounce and we had to run and they were chasing us and it was just this oh it was a fucking nightmare and i and i was pissed because i was ready to leave after we did the piece and it didn't feel like it was necessary just to vandalize all these other cars you know we did what we wanted i'm a style writer i'm not really a bomber you know and i did have fun tagging the other cars but i just was like this ain't worth it i don't think this is cool we should be getting the fuck out of here. And sure enough, we get fucking chased. And I was so mad at Psycho. So we ran back to his fucking car. We had to jump in all fucking crazy, fire the car up, peel out, getting out of there because they were so close on our asses. And uh, I think they sent out cars after us because, again, it was so late at night. By then, it was probably like 3, 3.30 in the morning, maybe even 4. And... Uh, it was just a fucking crazy night. So we get in a high-speed chase. We felt like somebody was behind us chasing us that we had to get rid of, and we did eventually. And I was like, man, I've been trying to paint these fucking trains for so long. I wasn't able to get the damn photo because we went tagging the other trains. And I was like, dude, I need to get this fucking photo. I need proof that at least I hit one fucking train in London while I lived here. This is fucking ridiculous. And he was like, fuck it. Let's go back. So we went back, and I didn't even try to be on the down low at all. I knew where there was a spot where I could run right into the yard, maybe through a hole in the fence or something. Or actually, no, hold on. There's this whole other part that I was about to skip that's fucking nuts. So we get back to the yard. And I figured they were still actively looking for us or at least, you know, were wary. And so I see a row of garages, single car garages right next to each other. And they're all in one building. It's like 12 of them in a row uh, behind like a housing development or an apartment complex kind of thing. And behind the garages is the train yard and in particular, the train that we painted. So I was like, yo, give me a second. I'm going to hop out the car. I'm going to climb up on the roof of that garage right there. And I'm going to have a look around. And if it seems good, I'll fucking come back. I'll run into the yard. I'll get the photos with the flash. And I'll run back. You'll have the car running. And we'll get the fuck out of here. And everybody was like, cool. You know, get flicks of all our shit. And I was like, you bet. So... I'm up on this fucking uh, garage and I'm looking into the yard and it seems pretty cool. Like it's quiet. I don't see anybody walking around. Our pieces are there. They've got decent lighting. I can see that I can just run up from a spot by the fence. I think there was a hole and just run in and get the flick and get the fuck out. And it should be fine. So I'm up there and I decide to walk back to the car. And as I'm walking on the roof, I hear a big crack and then I fall through the fucking roof. I fall th through the roof onto a car that was parked in the garage there on the hood and it bounced like fucking crazy because my full body weight on my back hit the hood of this car and the roof kind of collapsed around me. 
and uh, it was so fucking loud. It was crazy, just this incredible crash. And then uh, extra just like shit falling apart because the roof kind of collapsed once I fell through, just kind of bit by bit. And I was like, what the fuck? I, I was really dizzy. My head hurt. But I was like, I got to get the fuck out of here. Like, the cops are going to fucking come for sure. Like, immediately. So, I fucking literally climbed out through the roof of this little garage. Like, climbed up on a table, pulled myself up on the roof, and pulled myself out through the fucking hole that I had just made in the roof. And it was big. It was no joke. And I fucked up that car, whatever it was. I my full body weight on my back to the hood it must have fucked it up but I climb out and I run over trying to be careful to stay along the edge of the building knowing that the roofs might be you know I might fall through another one fucking climb down get to the car and psycho and little homie are laughing their fucking asses off like laughing out loud buckling over dying and I'm like, fuck you guys. And they were like, what the fuck was that? And I was like, I fell through the fucking roof. And they were like, dude, get in here. You just made so much fucking noise. And I was like, fuck. Take me over here around the corner. I'm going to run in there and get the fucking photos. And they were like, all right, dude. So I did just that. I, I ran over to the train, took the photos, used a flash, and just said, fuck it. And, uh. I did see uh, workers or security or whatever uh, coming for me when I uh, finished up the last flick. But I just ran back to the car and uh, hopped in. We just took off. And I don't think anybody chased us that time. Uh, but it did take us a while to get back to Wandsworth where I was staying. Psych uh, Psycho drove me all the way home because it was like, I think the sun was coming up at that point. Um, it's probably must have been close to six o'clock in the morning by the time I got home and uh I was thinking I'd just be able to creep in and uh take a shower and just kind of put the night behind me but uh I got home and I I tried to real quietly open the door and I got in and as soon as I got in the house I looked over into the kitchen and there's honor Tom's mom six o'clock in the fucking morning making coffee doing her thing. She got up early. She was an older lady. And uh, I didn't know it at the time, but I was covered in blood. I took a, a beam or something to the top of my head when I fell through the roof, and uh, it cut my head really bad. And uh, I didn't get stitches or anything, but it was pretty nasty. And it was under the hair. Um, I think I shaved my head pretty soon after, and I could see it pretty good, but it was pretty healed by then. But that night, it was it was bad, and uh, I kind of looked like Carrie from the, the horror movie because <laughs> the blood had kind of poured out kind of uniformly on the sides and on the back and on the front, kind of all around my whole head. So my hair was just kind of soaked in blood, and I had blood all the way down my shirt, like almost to my waist. And uh, I felt fine. I knew my head had uh, been hurt, but I hadn't really touched it yet. Um, 
you know. So I scared the shit out of Honor, and I felt really bad. And she was like, oh, my God, what happened to you? And I was like, oh, Honor, don't worry. Everything's fine. I, you know, got into a graffiti adventure last night, and I fell down, and I think hit my head. And I promise you I didn't get into a fight or anything. I just, you know, was being a jackass. And she was just like, Jesus Christ you can't do this. Like, you know, if you're going to live here, you can't just be showing up at six in the morning covered in blood. Like, this is just not okay. You know, you're bringing girls over. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm not trying to take advantage of you or, or any of this. You know, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, this kind of thing very rarely happens. I don't think I've ever been injured this bad writing graffiti before. And she was just like, you got to get your shit together, man. So I, uh, went upstairs and took a shower and had a good look in the mirror and was kind of like damn i lost a lot of blood that's not good um i gotta be careful just felt like kind of an asshole but at the same time was like man fucking london is kicking my ass this is getting out of hand like i'm fucking almost getting arrested fucking getting really hurt this is just not good so I think it was basically at that point that I was like, all right, I need to seriously just go back to fucking San Francisco. I've had enough of this. Um, I had been talking to uh, my girlfriend from before I left uh, for London, and she really wanted me to come back and live with her and try again. So I was down. So... I got my shit together. I think I had a bit of money stashed. I bought a ticket like maybe two weeks out um, so I could get a, a decent discount versus just buying it that day. If you buy an airplane ticket the day of, they're fucking crazy expensive. But depending on the airline, you know, they get cheaper the further out you go. So I figured what airline I looked at and they were like, yeah, two weeks is, is the break to get the, the cheaper fare. So I was like, cool. So in that two weeks, I got my shit together started letting people back in the States know I was going to return and was going to need some help looking for a job, shit like that. And, uh, and I went back and that was that. And, uh, so it was probably in June of that year. I was back in San Francisco. Uh, I just had what I had taken with me to London as far as like possessions and whatnot. I had nothing. I left everything but, uh, when I left San Francisco thinking I'd be in London, you know, indefinitely. In the end, I was only there for about six months and then uh, moved back. But uh, at, things, at first, things were cool with, uh, I'll call her Claire. <laughs> uh, when I moved back, uh, the sex was great. We were very excited to see each other again. Uh, we were very excited about a future together. And, uh, you know, and I was just like, yo, I, I just got to get a job, get on my feet, you know, and then I can move out of here or I can start contributing rent. You know, I just I got to I got to find a job. I don't know what I can do these days. I left the skateboard industry behind. I don't think they really want me back and I don't really want to go back to that world. So I got to I got to figure this this out. You know, I remember she got a, on a phone call with her best friend. And uh, we were just chilling out, watching TV or something. And uh, over the course of this, like, 15-minute conversation, her friend had convinced her that I was being a freeloader 
and had no interest actually in trying to provide you know some financial assistance and get a real job and and all that shit and that that was totally not true <laughs> she convinced claire that uh you know she needed to kick me out so she did and i was like what the fuck i i couldn't believe it so right then and there i just gathered up my shit and i left and i think i remember calling my friend jace and asking if i could spend the night at his place for that night because my girl had just kicked me out and he was like hell yeah get over here <laughs> so uh, i went over there and then uh the next day i was like i think i called claire and was like hey i need to come by there and grab the rest of my shit and she was like okay come over i'm here and i was like cool and i went over there and started getting my shit together and i was just about to leave and she was like you're just really gonna leave like that and i was like wait a minute wait a minute you kicked me out last night and she's like yeah but i don't know i don't know how i feel about that today and i'm like well you can't fucking flip-flop on me and you know you just you can't do that to me like i'm that's not fair you know i didn't think it was so i was just like listen you know this this ain't gonna work i'm i, I need to just bounce so i did i bounced and uh i think it was only maybe might have been that day or the day after uh i was hanging out with uh or talking to my friend laura who was from albuquerque but she was living in san francisco she'd been there for a while she used to be the front desk lady at uh thrasher magazine for a while she's the shit she was my little raver homie back in the day and uh she lives in santa fe now she's cool as fuck but uh Anyway, <clears throat> Laura was like, yo, I got a an extra room in my place. Our, uh, uh, one of our roommates just moved out. You know, you could move in over there. And that was over near McAllister and Arguello, if you're familiar with San Francisco. Right near the park. Really nice spot. Walking distance to Upper Hate. Walking distance to, uh, uh, what's that fucking street called? Uh, Clement Street, which is really fucking cool. And uh, I was pumped. So... I was able to move in with her. I think it was kind of minimal money too, because I, you know, I didn't, I didn't really have any money. I, I was, you know, fucking broke. But uh, I, I busted ass and and got out there and looked around for work. And uh, eventually, uh, I saw an ad uh, for a job at an adult bookstore, and was like, fuck. I guess all right, I'll, I'll give this a try. <laughs> so I applied, uh, for a job at this porn shop in, uh, the Selma district. I think it was just off of Howard street near like fifth. There's a few adult bookstores right there. Uh, I gave my application. They did a little interview. They said they'd hit me back. Uh, maybe just the next day. I think they were like, yeah, we can offer you a job. It's uh, midnight to 8 a.m. It's at one of our stores in uh, North Beach. Uh, are, are you interested? And I was like, yeah, I just need a fucking job, you know? And uh, I thought I might only work there for a few weeks while I found something else, you know? Uh, so I took the job at Kearney Book and Video. I don't know if it's still there. It's on Kearney Street right near, I guess that would be Columbus in Broadway right there. Um, it was a super happening spot at night. 
uh, especially on the weekends as people from all over the Bay Area would come to North Beach to party and get crazy. A lot of girls, a lot of strip clubs, porn shops, all that kind of stuff. So it was kind of like debaucherous part of town. Um, and yeah, I fucking worked midnight to 8 a.m., five days a week. Um, I had this really cool manager. It was this African guy. He had like a thick uh, accent from, I might have been from Senegal. He was really fucking cool. He, he was really like appreciative of the people that owned the, the porn shops that gave him a, a really good living because he was like a, a, a real manager of a whole store. So he was getting paid pretty well. Um, and then there was us, the, the sales guys that he dealt with. And uh, I think I was, you know, I was good because I was honest. I never cheated them out of anything. I tried to keep uh, things cool in the stores. Um, you know, it was just, it was, it was pretty gnarly because like the, uh, the back of my store had these little booths. A lot of places still have them. They're called arcades usually. And they play porn movies and you have like a booth that's big enough for you to privately masturbate. And uh, there's usually tissues and stuff there so you can clean yourself up um, before you leave. And it's just kind of really fucking disgusting and raunchy. Uh, Yeah. And luckily, I didn't have to go into the arcade as the sales guy Uh, twice a day this crew of two guys would come in that were cleaners and they would sweep and mop and disinfect the arcade area um, at 8 a.m. and at 8 p.m. Uh, every day. And uh, that, and you know, I was told I really didn't need to go back there, that that was like uh, not a responsibility of mine. The only real responsibility of mine was um, basically they would, the customers would come in they'd see a video on uh, the wall that they liked and they'd bring the box up to me. And then I would put that video on for them on a particular uh, VCR. I had eight VCRs, I think, behind me at the register. And each one of those corresponded with one of eight rooms in the back. So I would say, okay, well, I just put your movie on in uh, room number two. That should be empty. If it's not, come back and let me know. Um, so they would go back and watch the movie and jack off or whatever. Um, but I was told specifically not to let people rent movies that were more than like an hour. Cause there were these videos that were like these four hour fucking compilations of lots and lots and lots of different scenes for super cheap. And I wasn't supposed to let people rent those cause they were so long. And sometimes people would just camp the fuck out in those booths, especially when it was really cold out at night. Sometimes I would even let homeless people rent those four-hour movies uh, knowing that they were just trying to have a place to fucking stay warm for four hours even though they were sitting in like a a folding chair in a fucking cum-soaked little room. You know, it's fucking disgusting, but... That's how cold it would get and how desperate sometimes the homeless people would get. And I knew that, so I would I would let them do that sometimes. Um, and it was such a funny, uh, such a funny vibe in a porn shop. Like men usually are very uncomfortable 
in porn shops and it was so funny to me to see how uh, people, men especially, wouldn't even acknowledge each other in the store. They would just kind of ghost each other. Like n- nobody was acknowledging, nobody was saying hi to anybody, nothing. Real quiet and just weird. Just the, the, the background music that would play from the classic rock station. And uh, it was just such a bizarre dynamic. And there were, I did have a few regulars. Um, which is kind of crazy because, you know, I work the graveyard shift. So, you know, there was this one guy I remember that would come in, I think it was on Thursdays at like six in the morning. And he had a business suit and a briefcase. Seemed like he had his shit together. It's like a real working stiff guy. And he would get a movie. And we sold this, uh, what was it called? It's called poppers, maybe amyl nitrate. It's these little glass bottles, and you open it up, and it's like a, a solvent, and you breathe it in, and it gives you a head rush and a, kind of a pounding sensation in your head, kind of like uh, laughing gas. Uh, what the fuck? Nitrous. Uh, if you've ever done nitrous, it's, it's similar to nitrous. And so these guys would fucking jack off and sniff this stuff at the same time, and I guess it was a good feeling because a lot of them did it, that classic combo of the fucking rental video and the the amyl nitrate. Um, But this dude would fucking do that for like two hours until 8 in the morning when I would get off my shift, and he'd be leaving just as I was leaving, and I always assumed he was off to like get breakfast and then go to work. I just thought it was so strange that he would come in once a week to my store and fucking masturbate in the the fucking room from 6 to 8 a.m. It was just so weird. I don't know what kind of lives people were leading i remember too just walking past the uh the back because there were like these swinging bar doors that separated the store basically from the arcade in the back and i never had to go back there but i was walking past those doors one time and i saw these two dudes talking and i was like hey guys come here you're not supposed to be like interacting with each other in the arcade and they were like, oh, sorry. And they came out, and uh, I looked at them both, and they both had wedding rings on. And I was like, what are you guys doing? You know, are you guys hooking up back there? And they were like, oh, sorry. We didn't mean to cause any problems. And I was like, you guys, what the fuck? You're married. Like, go home to your wives. What are you doing here fucking around with randoms at the fucking, at my store? Like, this is awful. And they were embarrassed as fuck and fucking left. And I was just like, Jesus Christ. It, 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 that, that job really started to make me uh, dislike porn and, and really kind of, I don't know, just see how people were using that kind of material in really unhealthy ways and promoting really unhealthy habits and kind of like uh, mental health issues and stuff. You know, I was kind of seeing the worst of it. Uh, from from my perspective behind the counter there and it it started to kind of get on me but some of it was still pretty entertaining there was a guy uh that i called animal that would come in pretty much i'd say three nights out of the week he would come by and he was just this homeless guy he never spoke to me i never heard him speak uh he would grunt and moan and stuff kind of like like that and that's kind of why i called him animal 
uh, and he also wouldn't uh, bathe. So he was really, really stinky. It was like this thick funk cloud that you could almost feel in the air. It was just like so profound. Um, but often uh, he, he wouldn't really hang out towards the front of the store. So I didn't really mind how bad he smelled. <laughs> and I enjoyed watching like the businessmen and stuff that were in the store react when animal would stand right next to them. And again, cause it was the porn shop, like people were being really uptight and they wouldn't even acknowledge animal. They wouldn't say a thing. And I just knew they were like standing in a, a, a stew of stench. And it was just so funny to me to watch people just try to ignore animal. And just at a certain point have to be like, fuck, I got to get away from this guy. But he was another one where he was just trying to kind of get in f- away from the cold. And there were very, very few businesses that were open past 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, I was one of, I might have been the only store other than maybe, a, see, even the liquor stores closed. I might have been the only store in that whole neighborhood that was open 24 hours. So all the fucking weirdos would, would come by at some point. And uh fucking animal would come by. And I had like, there was probably four to 500 different videos that you could um, peruse that were on the walls of the, the back of the shop. And he would come in and he would start all the way to the left in the upper corner and he would pull down the box and he would look at the front and he'd look at the back and he'd go, hmm. And then he'd put it back in exactly the same position. And then he'd pull out the one just to the right of it. And he'd look at the front, and he'd look at the back, and he'd go, hmm, and he'd put it back. And literally, he would do that to every single video, almost in an autistic fashion, where he would look at them in the same combination every time, too, the same order. So I knew he he was familiar with all of it, but it was his way to just be like, this is why I'm in the store. I'm, I'm acting like I'm a customer. I'm going to look at every single video. And he would, and it would take him like sometimes an hour more, you know? And like I say, like the whole time he would be doing that, people would be coming in and out of the store and would go back near him, anywhere near him, like five or six feet from him, and they'd smell him and be like, holy shit, and turn around. (laughs) Fucking animal. But he would look me in the eye. He would smile at me. I would ask him things, and he would just smile and grunt. You know, I don't know how much he was able to comprehend uh, at all, really. And once in a while, maybe once a month or so, he would come in and he would be cleaned up. He'd get a haircut and a shave, and uh, it was seemed like somebody washed all of his clothes for him. I don't know what the deal was, but sometimes you could catch Animal and he wasn't too bad. But boy, at the end of the fucking month before his bath, he would just be so fucking gnarly. God bless. I, I, I'm... Yeah, I have such distinct memories of that guy. He came by a bunch because I worked there for a few months and would saw him a lot. There was this other guy, Rosie, or I called him. I don't know what his real name. But he would buy roses at the flower market in the morning. Uh, roses, lots of them. And uh, then at night, he would walk around North Beach and try to find people who were on dates and see if he could get the, uh, the gentleman to buy uh, roses for their date. And uh, it was a good gig. He was buying the roses for probably less than a dollar a piece and selling them for 
five to ten bucks a piece depending you know he had this whole racket going and his he he told me he knew how to like read people to say you know if it was ten bucks or five bucks you know uh but he'd come in all the time and he was on a tweak he was a crystal meth addict and he was this big fat guy and he always wore overalls he was kind of like a grateful dead kind of looking dude um but he was clean shaven uh he, he reminded me of the dad from uh uh fuck what was the name of that show i'm not gonna be able to think of it with roseanne Barr. uh roseanne the the dad from roseanne uh what the fuck's his name but anyway reminded me of him and he would come in all the time and he would just want to talk because he was uh yeah he was just tweaked and he was up all night and like i say there was nothing else open and i didn't mind him he would never be weird he would point out if he saw people maybe trying to steal shit to me. You know, he was helpful in that way. Um, and he would occasionally look at the Playboy magazines. I remember him saying he really didn't like pornography. He didn't like to see people having sex, but he really liked Playboy. He was all about Playboy. So he would always come in and be, hey, you got the new Playboy? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's over there. Go ahead and look through it. And uh, he would kick it, whatever. And there was this other guy... Uh, that I called the swiper and he would come in and we had like a magazine rack. It was like four rows up top and four rows on the bottom of all just magazines. And it was probably about four feet wide. And uh, this guy would come in and he would grab uh, on the first row of the upper deck of magazines. He would grab the, the first magazine all the way to the right. And he would just kind of push all the magazines together into one big, a bunch that was like you know six or seven inches thick of just you know all these stacked magazines and just real quick he would slide all of them into his jacket so the whole top row of magazines would be gone just like that in an instant and it was super fucking obvious when it would happen because he just took the whole fucking row and he would try to just like slowly creep out you know just with uh, uh, all these magazines like 10 magazines under his jacket and uh I fucking, I caught him pretty early working there. And uh, as he was right at the front door, I came around the counter and I stopped him and was like, hey, man, can I see what's under your jacket there? And he was like, fuck. And he looked at me and kind of like, sorry. And uh, I was like, hey, man, give me those back, dude. You can't, you can't just steal the magazines, dude. And he was like, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. You know, I just, I'm hungry and. I need some food. And I was like, dude, you can't just be stealing shit from my store, though. I'm sorry. Just don't ever come back. And uh, fucking next fucking day, he was there. And he tried to do the same fucking thing. And I was like, dude, bro, do you remember I busted you doing exactly the same thing yesterday? And he was like, no, you didn't. And I was like, yeah, I did, bro. Like, And I told you, you can't come back here anymore. And now for sure. You can't come back here no more. And he was like, no, nah, man, you got to understand, like, I need I need money and I can sell these magazines. And I was like, dude, no, I'm not your savior, homie. I'm just a, a clerk at a porn shop. Like, you need to fucking not come back here. And sure enough, the next fucking night, he came back. And I didn't even let him in the front door the third time. I was just like, nah, dude. I, I know you, you can't come in here. And he was like, you don't know me. This is the first time I've ever been here. And I'm like, no, no, sorry. You got to go, you know? And he tried a few times before he finally got it that I, I really wasn't going to let him in the store. But 
it, it really he was super bombed because he must have been stealing magazines in great numbers like that for a long time and had had this fucking hookup and i just took it from took it from him i also got a lot of visits from my uh, graffiti friends because i was in north beach and again i was the only thing open after like two o'clock in the morning so if my buddies were out writing graffiti uh and they got chased or something they would uh just run right over to the store i remember uh bigfoot did that a few times just came and hit out i think uh sam flores even uh came by one time and had to hide out i might have even hit him out in the basement because uh it was him or Bigfoot came, and they were like, dude, they're right behind me. And I was like, run down the basement, that back door right there. Go in there. And he, they ran down to the basement. The cops ran in the store and were like, hey, did so-and-so run in here? You just see somebody that looked like this? And I'm like, oh, I, I didn't see anybody come in here like that. And they're like, fuck, we thought we saw him come in here. And I'm like, no, nobody here. And then they would uh, creep out of the, the basement you know, a little later, and I'd be like, everything's cool, bro. Don't trip. That happened a bunch. I remember Kotick Joe used to come by and hang out with me, too. Just be out super late, and at the time too, I was buying a lot of books at City Likes Bookstore. It's this famous like, uh, what would you call that? Like Bo- Bohemian uh, kind of uh, uh, little bookshop. And uh, I was reading a lot of uh, Jack Kerouac and Charles Bukowski. I I think City Lights was putting out books by those two guys back in the day, and that's why I was getting hip to that. But uh, I liked it. I loved. Uh, Kerouac's style uh, and the stories were really cool and I, I love Bukowski's just kind of like down and out view of the world and uh, just his uh, way of using words was just so fucking cool I thought and uh, so probably around I don't know July of that year in the summertime uh, I remember hanging out with uh, my friend Avery who I'd known since probably 93 or 4 through uh, basically through Think Skateboards and stuff. She's a really cool girl that I just have always really dug. She's rad, Avery. She ended up uh, running Skulls Press, which was my publishing imprint uh, from about 2000 to fuck, I don't know. She did it for years, maybe 2008 or so. But uh, she was cool as fuck. And at the time, she was living in a Victorian house on Howard Street, uh, probably near like 10th or 11th, something like that, I think. Um, And uh, yeah, I was uh, single again because I had come back to be with Claire and that didn't work out. So I was single again. And she had this uh, roommate named Lisa that was not really that pretty and was kind of a weird dirty girl i remember she had like toe rings that avery thought were fucking disgusting and avery told me too that she would keep uh mason jars with a little bit of water in them to drop her cigarette butts into and they were just kind of all over the place and she just thought she was kind of gross but you know was a decent roommate i think paid things on time whatnot i think i don't know but uh i think she was really disgusted that me and lisa um hit it off <laughs> Because we would go for drinks in the mission and stuff. And I, I think we made out a few times, uh, me and Lisa. Uh, but, again, I, it was kind of awkward. And I remember uh, one time uh, I had gotten home from the the porn shop. Uh, 
at like nine o'clock in the morning because again I was working midnight to eight a.m. So I'd get home about nine a.m. and usually I'd have a little something to eat and then try to go to sleep. Um, and she, she, I don't know how she got in touch with me. She might have called or paged or some shit. I forget back then, but uh, she came by and uh for real she just wanted to give me a blowjob and i was like what the fuck awesome yeah get over here and so she came over and sure enough like i was just just in bed nude just basically sleeping you know and she came over and hopped in the bed with me and we started making out and she gave me a really fucking nice blowjob and then was like thank you and then bounced, gave me a little kiss on the forehead. And I was like, what the fuck was that? And uh, I, it's a funny thing that I remember because I think that was maybe the first time that something like that had ever happened where or a girl really just came over to do some specific thing and then was out. That was really random. And I just remember being like, what the hell? And I don't think I hooked up with her again after that. I think she started seeing somebody and was like, I need to chill on seeing you or some shit like that. I don't, I don't really remember, but I just, that was fucking really random. Uh, God bless you, Lisa. <laughs> I remember that shit. Uh, and then, uh, let's see, I'm trying to look at my notes here. Oh yeah. Right around that time too, that summer, um, I had been, riding my bike around in the mission and noticed there was this schoolyard. I think it was like Harrison and 18th or 19th, something like that. There was a schoolyard there and they had this big, uh, like a shipping container that had a smooth side on it. Didn't have like the ridges like usual ones. And, uh, I think, you know, it was July. So I think school might've been out and I thought, Oh, that might be a good spot to hit. Um, because there's there won't be anybody around and the 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 container itself faced harrison street i think so you could see it through a fence you know from a distance really clearly so i uh decided to just hit it solo which was kind of a i don't know that it's a different experience when you go out and write graffiti illegally at night by yourself than when you're with other people this is a whole different uh i don't know it's got a whole different vibe and uh, I really like painting alone. Something really satisfying about that, like when you're done and there's nobody there to applaud your effort or anything. It's just like you know what you did and you did it, and that feels good. Um, so I did that that night. I have a, a photo of it that I found. I'll, I'll post on Instagram. Um, just a nice little semi-wild piece. But, again, at night, nobody around, uh, you know, and uh, it came off nice. And I remember a lot of people saw it especially people on bicycles because there was a bike lane right near there, I think. And, uh, yeah, everybody saw it and was like, fuck yeah, dude, that was that was tight. and That, that felt good. Um, I think in probably in August of that year, uh, my friend Justo from Detroit came to visit, and uh, he's a fucking real character, real uh, exciting dude, Ben. I really like him a lot. And uh, so he came out. He might have been with our friend Dame from LA too they were fucking like bosom buddies they were a, a pair and uh he came up to visit and uh we did a bunch of nice pieces together in particular uh we went and painted this wall off of uh third street in San Francisco 
and there's a bunch of railroad tracks that are no longer being used by trains and warehouse buildings. And uh, it was far enough away from people and stuff that uh, it became like a graffiti spot. And at the time, the building that we hit uh, just had tags and throw-ups on it. And uh, we were like, yo, we think we can pull off pieces there in the middle of the day, you know, if we're, if we're kind of quick and stealthy about it. And so we went over there, and I did a nice wild style piece. I had a, a, a good outline that I was into, and it was symmetrical. It was really tricky to pull off those symmetrical pieces to make them look just right. Um, but this one came out pretty good, and I was able to paint it pretty quickly, I remember. And uh, I left uh, pretty quickly after I finished. And I found out like the next day that maybe 10 minutes after I left, the police showed up, <laughs> all of them got fucking super hassled. I don't think anybody got a ticket or went to jail or anything, but uh, I just barely missed uh, the cops by literally 10 minutes. Um, but that was another thing. You know, I, I would paint fast, and I wouldn't really just hang out if uh, if I didn't really need to, you know? Um, and then uh, not long after that, might have even been the same month, um, I had talked to my friend Nala about tattooing a graffiti piece across my shoulders. And uh, I had uh, done a, a slightly different version of the same uh, graffiti piece that I painted on the wall with Justo. I think Soap and Felon were on that wall too. And uh, I showed it to Nala and showed him how I wanted to, it to sit and stuff. And he was like, hell yeah, this is great. So... I think, you know, we got the outline of it on there in uh, August of that year. And uh, and that was just fun. Because I, I think at the time, Nala was just letting me trade artwork for the tattoo work, which was cool. Because I wasn't making a ton of money. Again, I was at the fucking porn store. <laughs> I wasn't making shit. Uh, but, I, you know, I was the first uh, big tattoo on my back, which was uh, definitely notable. Um, let's see... Around that time, too, I met uh, a writer named Dase, D-A-S-E, from ATT in the uh, Midwest. ATT had really, really awesome writers, uh, super, super, super solid crew, and I was stoked that one of their uh, crew guys was, was in uh, the Bay Area, and uh, Dase and I went out and painted quite a few times at night, nice color pieces. Um, we did tunnels and stuff together too. I, I always really liked his letter forms. It really cool. It was like a different style than the West Coast shit, and uh, I really appreciated it. And he, he was really fun to paint with, real chill. Didn't have to worry about him. Um, also, I think that month I did a uh, trackside in San Francisco, right near Dolores Park, like kind of above Dolores Park, uh, with Kr, uh, who is famous for uh owning crink the graffiti uh ink and uh back in the day he was making it you know like homemade and you could buy it from him in these uh bottles you know back then and uh it was the bomb shit for sure you know but i think a lot of people kind of had a uh the recipe uh in basic form that he was using but his was very very particular and perfect other people's were kind of chunky or too thick or whatever but uh those silver mops were, were the fucking shit. But 
that night uh, we did color pieces. He did a nice big uh, simple KR, I think in yellow and red. I have a picture of it that I'll put on Instagram. I did like a nice little semi-wild style, similar to the the piece I did uh, actually on the uh, container in the schoolyard that same month. Uh, and that was really fun. I, I remember too, right around that time, KR and I tried to do big roller blockbusters uh, behind Safeway in the, the uh, behind the Safeway on Market Street in the subway tunnels there. And uh, we got caught by workers. And uh, they wouldn't even let us leave with our materials. We had, you know, buckets of paint, like five-gallon buckets and rollers with extension poles and the whole nine. And uh, they busted us as soon as we started painting and just were like, nope, leave it. We're taking all of it. You know, you're lucky, you know, to get out of here. You know, we're going to call the cops. They might be waiting for you outside. And we were like, fuck. So we just bounced and we were really careful going out of the Muni tunnel thinking the cops are going to be waiting for us, but they weren't. And uh, we were just like, fuck it. We'll, you know, we'll try again another night. That sucked that we lost so much paint that night. We were, oh, fuck, that would have been epic if we had pulled that off, but it didn't happen. That's how it goes sometimes. Um, probably in uh, September of that year, after I'd been working at the adult bookstore for a few months, uh, I ran into an old friend named Noah Hurwitz. Uh, we used to make drum and bass music together. And uh, or I guess actually we hadn't done that yet. I think I know he was making drum and bass music and all kinds of different stuff. And uh, he was quite a, a savvy uh, computer guy. And uh, he owned a 3D computer animation firm called Imagination Plantation. And uh, it was uh, part of a 2D uh, animation company called Wild Brain, I think. God, I hope that's right. I don't know. That just kind of popped out of my head. Wild Brain. But it, uh, uh, it was cool. And uh, they were doing really cool shit. And Noah... Asked me, you know, how things were going, how England was. And I was like, yo, you know, it worked out. It was kind of tough. And I came back and he knew I was, he knew Claire, my ex from before I moved to London. And I told him it didn't work out with her. And he was like, ah, oh, fuck, that sucks. And, well, listen, man, I, I own this uh, animation company. If you want to come work for me. And I was like, dude, I don't know how to use computers, man. I do everything by hand. I draw and paint and stuff. And he was like, don't worry, man. I'll, I'll show you how to use Photoshop. It's not tough what I need you to do. And so uh, he fucking offered me a job. So I gave two weeks notice at the porn shop. I think I was the only one in the history of that fucking company to give two weeks notice because usually people didn't give a fuck and would just like leave the key and lock the door and just leave a note saying I fucking quit, sent my check to this place, you know, and that would be that. But uh, I gave him fucking two weeks notice and my manager, the African fellow, he was so stoked that I, I was doing it right and wasn't trying to fuck him and, you know, just, you know, I was doing it right. He was able to hire somebody to take over. It's a smooth transition. And he even got me a little cake. I remember the last day that I was at the porn shop, we were in the basement where his little office was. And it was like super uh, musty down there. It was this concrete basement, you know, never, the temperature never changed and it always smelled kind of funky. Uh, but he had a cake and the, the day shift guy was there and we shared it. 
and it was just this this whole funny thing he was like if you ever need a job again you always have a place here and i was like fuck i, I hope i never have to come back here bro <laughs> um but that was cool so i left there and i started working in imagination plantation it was in the mission down near like uh 17th street and like uh what would that be like uh Folsom or so or maybe further out I remember Twist had a studio that was nearby. We'd see him riding his bicycle every once in a while. We'd all freak out because we were all such huge fans. and He was such like an uh, elusive character. Um, but I really enjoyed working there. Uh, basically, what they had me learn how to do was texture mapping. So on a 3D computer object, uh, you can wrap the object with a texture which is basically just a JPEG file that's a flat file, obviously, but then in the 3D world, it, it wraps around it. So you have to kind of, in some ways, compensate for the, the, the curvature of the object on the flat original file so if things line up. So it was actually kind of tricky. Also, the uh, texture map files that I created had to be able to tile. So you needed to be able to put them next to each other and it would create a seamless pattern. But when you do that, it creates a really obvious pattern pretty quickly as soon as you start connecting those things together. So it was actually this kind of really tricky uh, little visual game of figuring out how to turn a flat uh, texture of like aluminum or wood or uh, fabric and make it work on a 3D object. Uh, at the time, we were doing stuff for um, lots of different companies. I think one of the first ones that we worked on was for Hershey's Kisses, little candies, little chocolate uh, teardrop-shaped kind of thing. And uh, up to that point, the Hershey's Kisses commercials had always been made with stop-motion cameras. So they did just have like a regular camera set up on a tripod and they would move the Hershey's a little bit and then take a picture, move it a little bit, take a picture, move it a little bit, take a picture. And of course, over time you can put those together on a film and then you've got motion, stop motion. That's how most like effects in movies, you know, like clay and stuff. Tim Burton loves uh, stop motion. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas might've been stop motion. But in any case, that was the way that things used to be done. So. We're at a 3D animation company, and we tell the people at Hershey's, we can create your same commercials where the Hershey's kiss itself becomes animated uh, using computers. And they were like, that's great and all, but it has to look exactly like the stop motion ones that we've always made because that's our look. And we were like, we can, we can do that, no problem. So we created a few different things. I think one was like where... Uh, the Hershey's Kiss got like lassoed by something and we animated that whole thing and like the foil came off the little chocolate and the flag animated and all this kind of stuff. And they were really impressed and they, they bought the commercials from us and that was a lot of money and they were able to reinvest into uh, the computer systems. At the time, we were using mostly Mac systems for all the 2D stuff, at least I was. And they were using silicon graphics machines for the uh, 3D stuff. I think at the time they were testing a program called Maya. I, I don't think they still use it. <coughs> but that was the uh, 
that was the big uh, technology at the time. And so also uh, the 2D company was working on Fern Gully that was on the same floor in the same building that we were in. And they wanted to do some uh, fly-throughs in this Fern Gully world using the 3D program. So we had to de design and build the whole 3D environment from these particular scenes in Fern Gully. Um, and it was a new thing at the time. It was called Toon Render, if I b remember right. And what you could do was do a fly-through in a 3D environment and assign the texture maps to the different objects, and then it would render. And uh, you'd end up with this animation. And often the renders for even just a 30-second commercial would take you know, overnight, like uh, 10, 12 hours for the computer to figure out how to, how to do everything. But with this tune render, you could make a 3D uh, animated thing look like a 2D animated cartoon such that it would add a black outline to the edge of the object and it would fill with whatever color or texture map that you assigned to that object. So it was really uh, honestly fucking amazing because in the Fern Gully movie, the stuff that we did in 3D is perfectly uh, in sync in look and everything with all the 2D work that the rest of the movie was made with. <coughs> really pretty amazing. I was really pumped to be a part of that, too. We also did, uh, at the time, um, I remember the GoldenEye 007 video game was out, and it was, I think, one of the first first-person shooter video games. And I remember it got to be kind of a problem in the office. I don't think I ever played it once, but all the other guys that I worked with would play it for hours and hours. They would start at lunch, and they wouldn't stop playing until like 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock. And they'd be like, fuck, we got to work. And then they'd be there at the studio all night working overnight uh, to get fucking shit done because they fucking lagged playing the goddamn video games. But I remember that was such a big deal. There were so many people that in that office and that would come from the other offices to play that damn game with them. And uh, it, it really kind of fucked shit up. Um I, I have some picks, too, from that time. I think it was right around September that Dalek, uh, my buddy, was visiting again. And uh, we did some pieces together. I loved uh, doing uh, graffiti with him. Like, my letters next to his uh, Space Monkey characters, I thought always looked really fucking cool. And we're two big, big white guys, about the same size and height and whatnot. And... Uh, I think, you know, we, we were just like a, a, a terrible twosome <laughs> in a good way. I, I really, really enjoyed uh, painting with him. And I, I think I have photos that I can post of uh, the stuff that we did together back then, too. Uh, let me check this thing. Oh, wow, I'm almost at another hour and a half. These are going fast. I had a lot of notes for 1998. So let's see. I'm painting. Let's see. I could th probably figure this out right here at the end. Um, in October, I think about of that year, my friend Nala uh, asked if I was still interested in learning how to tattoo. I had asked him years before if he would teach me, and he was just like, nah, I, I can't really. Um, I'm not in any position to do that, and there's already so many tattooers in the world, and you know, whatever. And uh, I think at that point, he might have been 
I can't remember which year, if it was that year or the year after that he got involved with Eastside Inc., a tattoo shop in New York City. So at least, you know, at some point in the back of his mind, I think he knew he had a place for me to work because uh, that was going to be, that was kind of a, a big part of how you get an apprenticeship and, you know, how basically you pay back the person that, that teaches you by working for them and giving them uh, a big percentage of your earnings, you know, to kind of pay back for what they taught you. So I was like, fuck yeah, let's do it. He told me I needed to get a few hundred dollars together for the equipment. I needed like, you know, power supply, tubes. Uh, I was able to get needles uh, from a friend of his that was making needles for a lot of tattooers in town. So uh, I was able to kind of skip learning how to make needles at that point and uh, was getting really good professional needles uh, right off the bat, which was super, super fucking helpful. I remember he gave me a, uh, a shader, uh, a national shader, national tattoo supply, I should say. And uh, it was where a lot of people were getting almost everything. All my equipment was from National back then, all my colors, everything. Uh, they were the place. And it was all uh, time tested and true. You know, you knew their pigments were safe and would last in skin and, and whatnot. Where there was a lot of products you weren't so sure about. The National stuff was good. And it was this like r little red foil machine, reflective. It was really cool. But I did everything with it. I lined with it and shaded with it. I did tribals with it. Uh, you know, I was. Uh, yeah, it was just one of those things. It was it was really really fun, and it was just the the real early early part of it. And uh, the first tattoo I made with that equipment is on myself. I did a graffiti piece on my upper left thigh, still there, of course. Uh, it's since been kind of touched up and colored in by different friends over the years, but uh, the original outline that I put in there myself is still there in a lot of places, and uh, it's it stayed in good. And I think Nala was expecting me to do like a, a tattoo the size of maybe a baseball on my upper leg just to kind of show him, you know, I could do it. And uh, when I showed up, the, the graffiti piece is like maybe a foot tall <laughs> on my thigh. But I'm so tall, it, it, it fits, you know, it's just, but it's big. I did, you know, it took me four hours to do the outline on it with a, a four round <laughs> in that shader. Uh, and I remember coming out of my bedroom that afternoon and my roommates were like, what are you even doing in there? And I'm like, look at my leg. And they're like, holy shit, did you just tattoo that on yourself? And I'm like, yeah, I did. I'm like, fucking, you're sick, dude. That's crazy. But it looked good. And they were like, yo, we want tattoos too. So I started uh, tattooing my friends. I would just show them the one I did on myself. And uh, one of my first customers was Kotick Joe. I think he actually was my first customer. I started a big leg sleeve on him right away. Just gigantic fucking tattoo. The big, I think it was a devil character or some shit. I'd have to ask him, but uh, I'd love to see it now. That was pretty much my first tattoo, other than the one I did on myself. And from there, you know, I just uh, he would show the tattoo to our graffiti friends, and, um, and things just started popping. And before I knew it, I was doing tattoos pretty regularly through the week, uh, just for free on friends just to just to learn how to do it and I would try to get photos or physically take my friends over to Sinala and show him what I was doing and he was impressed you know, I was I was working it out <coughs> um, I think in uh, October of that year too uh, there was this really cool metal wall at 22nd and Illinois Street in San Francisco it was like uh, 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 somebody had taken apart a big ship 
but with all the rivets and everything, and they just created this big fence. And I think Twist had originally painted it with some nice shit. It just had tags and bullshit on it because it was in an isolated neighborhood where writers rarely went. Um, but we kind of set it off and did really nice pieces, me and Soap and Felon, and my friend Jolt from uh, Albuquerque. It's a, another one that I'll, uh, I'll include on, the, uh, on Instagram once I uh, post this uh, uh, podcast that it's up. Uh, but that was another really, really cool spot. And uh, my friend Chris Woodcock, I, I'm not sure at what point I met him, but uh, he took some really nice photos of me that day too that I'll post. Uh, yeah, Chris Woodcock's the shit. Um, November of that year, I was still at uh, Imagination Plantation. I think we did a job for Willy Wonka Candy starting that, that month. We did uh, three commercials, one for Runts, one for Shock Tarts, Nerds, nerds, runs, and shock tarts. That was the three. And I remember they sent us a big bag of samples of the candy. And all of us ate it way too much. And we all had sores in our mouths. And it was, uh, I don't know, it was one of those things. We started to kind of feel bad that we were helping promote this product that, that fucked our mouths up really bad. <laughs> but we were eating way too much of it. It was just way too easy to walk past this fucking gigantic box of candy and just grab one or two or three or four or five, you know? And, uh, yeah, that was, that was funny. But the, those commercials were cool. I, I think you could probably find those on YouTube or something, Nerd Drunts and Shock Tarts. But they were all 3D. Uh, th- it was all using 3D animation but rendered looking like uh, 2D, like a regular cartoon. We did that a bunch. I think we did some for uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken too where we just had this big like uh, metal uh, door like on a, uh, on a bank vault that opened and closed and you could see the the kernel uh pop out or some shit like that um but that's the kind of jobs we were doing and it was cool around that time too i don't know how i met him but there was this kid uh that wrote jets j-e-t-s and i loved his style i can't remember where he came from might have been the northwest i wish i could remember more about jets um i think he was another tall white kid like myself we really vibed. I believe he was a house painter at the time. Uh, but I, like I say, I really, really loved his uh, letter styles. I'll include a, a photo on Instagram of a piece that we did in the DuBose Tunnel, and I let him design the uh, letters for both of our names. And uh, as you'll see in the photo, really, really interesting uh uh, like uh, letter styles that he used. And I think he spelled my name in an interesting way. He might have used a Y instead of an I in Giant just because he couldn't really figure out how to make an I look good. Uh, but Jets was the shit. I, I think he was only around for a little while before he moved away, but he did a lot of damage in San Francisco with a lot of style uh, for a while there. And I, I, I really miss Jets. I, I wish I knew where the fuck he was these days. Um, it, the only note I have left about 1998 here is uh, at the end of that year, it looks like uh, Chris Woodcock took some nice photos uh, that I'll post of me and uh, Apex uh, doing uh, bus shelters. Like he, Apex had gotten a tool from somebody that would open up the uh, bus shelter advertisement doors, these big glass doors where they had uh, – advertisement posters that were probably four feet by six feet. Um, and uh, he was able to pull those out of there and then replace uh, that poster with one of his own. And it was backlit, so it looked really professional and cool. 
Um, so he asked me if I wanted to get in on that, and I was like, fuck yeah. So I printed out a bunch of uh, stuff that I had around uh, really big on a big, uh, like a plotter copy machine. Those were really easy to uh, steal from back in the day because they didn't have any counters or anything. So you could just make all the copies you wanted and just bounce out of the store and kind of nobody knew any better. Uh, so we were making lots of posters back then. But uh, we, hit, we hit some right near... Uh, Actually, come to think of it, that might have been the next year because I might have lived up the street. But in any case, it was right around there. Um, there was quite a few people doing the the, uh, the bus shelter break-ins. Of course, I think Cause is probably the most famous. He was doing it in New York City and really made a, a thing of it in his uh, uh, interactions with uh, advertisement posters because he was taking the posters right out and then adding something to them and putting them back in. So it looked like really legit. Apex and I were just straight up taking the uh, advertisements out and just replacing it with our stuff completely. So it was really obvious that something got switched. And I don't think the stuff that Apex and I put up lasted more than just a few days before they went in there. And Because uh, that's advertising money. If they, a company sees that one of their ads has been co-opted by a graffiti writer, they call and they're like, hey, why are we paying for this ad space when some graffiti writer has taken it over? You know, So they were kind of on that shit and would buff it really quick. But I think that's about all I've got listed here for 98. I know it was a lot. Uh, but that was a that was a big fucking year, you know. Moved back from London, worked at the porn shop, and got started tattooing that year, too. That was a, a really huge transition year for me. And it was really tough. Uh, I remember being really depressed uh, and lonely through a lot of that year. It wasn't an easy one, you know, because I had left... Uh, think skateboards I'd worked there from 93 to 97 and had everything really good and then kind of gave it all up to try to change gears and that whole year of 98 was uh was difficult trying to figure out how to transition but like I say at the end of that year I was tattooing and that was really the beginning of the next chapter really which started in 98 of uh my professional career as a tattooer so uh yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, obviously, next time I'll uh, get into 1999, which is another big year. I spent a lot of time in New York City. And, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Peace. <laughs>